0: Hi, this is Ben Edmund. I am the creator of The Tick, and you are
1: listening to Genretainment.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks
1: and Julie. Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, books, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. It's time for episode 117, and we are chatting with writer Chris Fox.
2: Now, when you have non-fiction books with titles like 5,000 Words Per Hour and Right to Market, plus fiction books that have a mix of werewolves and zombies and aliens, you're going to get people's attention. (laughs) And don't even get me started on his very publicly documented challenge to himself to write and edit a full-length novel in 21 days Not only did he do it but he has sewed extremely well quickly become a fan of chris fox's fiction nonfiction. fiction we're excited to have him on the show
1: now chris tells us how he got into writing talks about his various books and shares so many excellent writing tips oh and somehow we got onto the topic of language neanderthals and bunnies <laughs> Woo-hoo! it makes sense we promise So if you're a writer, you'll love the tips, and if you're a reader, you just might discover a new sci-fi author to read.
2: We do want to mention that this episode was so delayed. Sorry! (laughs) We had a number of complications in bringing you this episode, including a brand new laptop dying on us.
1: That so should not happen.
2: Software issues, just life getting in the way. But we're excited to finally be able to bring you this episode just in time for the third Void Wraith book
1: release. Now, before we get started with the interview, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend Tishon Hardy, and you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, let's get started with our interview with Chris Box.
0: welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Well, thanks for being on the show. We look forward to talking to you about your nonfiction books and your fiction books. But first, let's talk about your background. how did you get into writing?
0: So I started writing at a very young age. Um, all the way back at age six, I was putting together little picture books um, and knew from that age that I wanted to be a writer. So I wrote all the way up through high school and then very quickly realized after graduation that I couldn't make any money doing it. So
1: <laughs> that is a sad reality check once you get out of high school. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I unfortunately I set it aside and I started, you know, uh, into computers, uh, became a software engineer and ran a computer store for a few years, uh, had a number of different careers not related to writing. And it wasn't until the advent of the self-publishing boom in about 2012 that I got back into it.
2: Mm-hmm. I saw that you wrote at least one piece for a role playing
0: game. Mm hmm right? The Rifter? Yeah, is I, that... I did write a number of articles for The Rifter over the years.
2: And, and I'm a role-playing game fan. Uh, does, does role-playing games, did it influence your writing style
0: at all or genres that you like to write for? Absolutely. So you'll see, if you're a, a player of games ranging from Rifts to Shadowrun to Dungeons & Dragons, you'll find little bits of that all over my work.
1: So have you been, uh, Marks is a uh, gamer from way, way back, and I'm a much more just kind of casual gamer. Is that something that you grew up doing?
0: Uh, yeah, and I still do to this day. So for almost four decades spent uh, playing these games off and on. Cool. cool. What's your favorite one? Or one it's like picking
1: a, picking a favorite child. One of your favorite favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what are some of your favorites? Don't just pick
0: one. Okay, um, I would say probably at this point, Pathfinder is the one I pay, play most frequently. There's another one that is more of a niche game called Exalted. That's a ton of fun. So probably those two. Okay.
2: You have a number of really good nonfiction books. Uh, and you writer, writer faster. No, write faster, write smarter.
0: It's Faster. <laughs>
2: you got you got your 5,000 words per hour, your lifelong writing habit, Write to Market, and your newer book, uh, Launch to Market. So what motivated you to start writing these nonfiction books about writing?
0: So back when I worked at a, a startup as a software engineer, I was an iPhone engineer for a San Francisco startup working 60 hours a week. I only had about an hour a day to write, and so I needed to figure out a way to write intelligently and be as efficient as possible. So I sort of invented the system that became those books and I started sharing it with other writer friends, and they said, hey, this is great, Chris. You need to get it out there for more people. So I kind of codified that, uh, wrote them up as books, and I'm trying to put out as many as possible to help people.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, necessity is the mother of all invention.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And they're really good. I've written – or I've, I've read.
1: <laughs> He's rewritten them. <laughs> <laughs> they're great. And then I've, I rewrote them. I've
2: read all but launched the market so far, and they're really good. So for people who haven't read them yet, can you describe what, for example, 5,000 words per hour is all about?
1: It's about writing 500 words an hour.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, Uh, in general, what what you're discussing. Obviously, it's a loaded title, but the idea behind 5,000 words per hour is to get your butt in the chair every day so that you can sit down and write consistently and as fast as you are capable of doing. So most people start at like 1,000 words an hour after implementing the system for a few weeks, they typically double or triple their word counts. So even if they're not hitting that 5,000 words per hour, they're still writing much, much more quickly.
2: Mm -hmm. What's an example of one of the tips that you share in the book? Uh,
0: To write in sprints. So you're going to start at a specific time. I usually use a stopwatch or an app that I've created to do that. And you write until the timer goes off. So you usually start with what I call micro sprints at about five minutes but the idea is you turn off your inner critic, you don't allow yourself to edit, you just get the words down, and you'll be amazed at how much progress you can make doing that. Hmm. To play devil's
2: advocate. <laughs>
1: it's like, how do you turn off your inner critic?
0: Yeah.
2: So some some people... Uh... You know, I'm sure you already heard it. You know, some of the criticism
0: whenever you talk about writing faster, people will go, oh, you can't write fast and write good. You know, what would you tell those people? Well, well, let me ask you a question. If if either of you are writers or any writers that you know, when you write your best scene ever, so the thing that you are most proud of, did you kind of hunt and peck and consider every sentence in that? You're just <laughs> come pouring out of you in a creative torrent really fast. Right. Yes.
1: Usually it's, <laughs> it's quick. I think, you know, because... I, I like the idea behind it, which is just, you know, get it all out there. Just like vomit the words out as much, as quickly as you can. You can always go back and clean it up later, you know?
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what you find is the more that you do this, the cleaner the work you produce. So when I did the 21 right. Day Novel Challenge, I changed very little of what I wrote, even though I was writing it very, very fast. So 85% of what I finished made it into the final draft.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I know you have some videos that came out recently of talking about editing. Can you describe a little bit about uh, how your editing process works?
0: Yeah, I I do what I call one-pass editing um, to create a draft that I can send to my line editor. So I'll read the book. So I do a read-through. And after uh, I've done that, I'll sit down and I'll make a bunch of notes about what I want to change. And then I'll go back to chapter one and I'll just rewrite each chapter in order until I get to the end of the book. So it's basically just kind of looping through to see what needs to be fixed and then applying the actual fixes and approaching it holistically like that instead of kind of tinkering here and tinkering there gets it done a lot faster. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I think also a good thing to point out is that that also gets it done because, you know, it's so easy to, you know, you, you write it. And then you go back and you kind of hunt, you know, hem and haw this section and then this. It's easy to just kind of make the editing process a, a never-ending process.
0: Right. And I think that goes back to your inner critic and, and the need to turn it off. You're never going to write the perfect book. And the stuff that you write today is not going to be your best work. It's going to be the best work you can produce right now. So you sort of need to give yourself permission to suck to kind of be where you are now <laughs> and just do the best you can. And how long
2: does your you know one pass normally take?
0: Uh, usually two to three days, depending on the length of the book. And just to be clear, you know,
2: you do at least sometimes use a copy editor too afterwards, right? Always,
0: always. So I used to do a developmental editor. I've cut that phase out of it, but the, only after I did the first ten books. I mean, I, I highly recommend getting a dev editor if you're new at the writing craft. They'll teach you a ton. But at this point, I still make sure a line editor sees it because there's there's just so many things that you can't catch in your own writing.
1: Right. Because you always know what you meant.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. And just in case you got someone who's new to writing, what's the difference between
2: a line editor and a, and a developmental editor?
1: So
0: a developmental editor is very much like your teacher in high school. They're going to tell you, hey, this is wrong, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and they're going to ask you to go back and rewrite it. So you're usually creating another draft with your developmental editor. A line editor is basically just fixing your prose and maybe a few inaccuracies where you know, somebody has the wrong color of eyes, but they're not looking for those big picture things, and it's going to be a smaller edit afterwards. They're just kind of cleaning up your prose.
2: You talked a little bit about your 21-day novel challenge. It was really interesting to watch because you made videos of this. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Sure. So, I I mean, when you have books that have kind of incendiary titles like I do, uh, (laughs) you tend to attract uh, skeptics. And a lot of people said, hey, there's no way, Chris, that you can do this. I I don't believe it's possible. Uh, So I wanted to very publicly test my methodology. So I decided I was going to write and edit a book in 21 days. And then it would see a line editor, and then I would just publish it. Um, once it's published, I, I gambled that it would sell in massive amounts because I was writing it to market and, you know, knock on wood that it continues to do so. It's sold more than the rest of my catalog put together. I've already made something like 25 grand in, in the eight weeks it's been out. Oh, wow.
1: That's awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you
2: how successful it was, but you just answered that. <laughs> Did you do this with some other books or did you like really push yourself to do 21 days for the first time with this, with this one?
0: I had been getting faster. So the first draft of Heroborn was done in 13 days. So I, I kind of knew that I could do 5,000 words a day reliably. And since I'm, I'm kind of really deep into the outlining, the writing goes very quickly because I know what it is I'm going to write. So I knew by the time I did the, the challenge that I could do the book in 21 days, but I wasn't sure that it would sell.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't know if we said, what, which book is that? Destroyer is the name of the book. Which I've been reading. So, uh, you know, our interview got pushed back a little bit, gave me a chance to read Destroyer. I'd been reading Deathless. And I really like Destroyer. It really uh, hooked me. Um, I find it really interesting because you did the book Right to Market, talking about how you, you wrote this book to market, basically, to genre. And, uh, you know, well, before I say any more, can you talk a little more about Right to
0: Market? and how you applied it for this book. Sure. So the idea behind Right to Market is that you as an author, if you want to sell books, before you write word one of your book, you need to know a genre where you can sell a lot of copies. I made the mistake on a couple of my books of writing the book first and then marketing it. And rather than do that this time around, I looked at what I knew would be a hungry genre, in this case, military science fiction, and I wrote a book where I knew there was a massive audience that would read it.
2: And why that specific genre? Is that something you really are passionate about? You like?
0: Exactly. And that's the other half of the equation. It needs to be something you absolutely love. So a lot of people see writing to market as selling out. But in my opinion, you should find a genre at the intersection between I really want to write this and I think it'll sell. So, I mean, I get to write about giant spaceships, which I've loved since I was a kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, it for those that, you know, there's always going to be be critics, but it's it's neat the way you've really come up with these ways to, that are really useful ways to help writers write. But the idea of knowing your audience is, I mean, I studied communications and majored in journalism in school. And, I mean, rule one in mass communications is know your audience. <laughs> it's, you know, and we would talk about that's the difference between the English crowd and the journalism crowd was we looked for an audience
0: (laughs) right and that's why i think the journalism crowd is going to thrive in the modern publishing industry while as academia is not
1: (laughs) (laughs) and i also like you know how when you were talking about the five thousand words per hour you're like well when you start out you know you're acknowledging that the more you do something the more practice you get the quicker you'll get you know It, it, it the critics i think also think that He's gonna say you're gonna be able to write 5,000 words per hour. Just read this book, and the next day, and you're like, no, 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 no. It's a process. <laughs>
0: a process that takes a lot of work too. I mean, you really got to get yeah. your butt in the chair day after day. Mm-hmm. So
2: when you did this uh, writing to market and trying to do this 21-day challenge, you know what was the most challenging part of this that maybe you didn't expect
0: the hardest part was doing it every day seven days a week so i was typically writing at that point um five to six days a week and not having a break at any point really mm. took a toll i was just you know, kind of destroyed by the end <laughs> <laughs> so for the sequel which i finished and goes live monday void wraith uh it took 25 days and i took sundays off so i did six days a week
1: mm.
0: and it was much mm. much better
1: writing is 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 actually physically exhausting yeah it it is i mean it's at least
2: mentally exhausting yeah
1: yeah but you i mean you feel it physically though agreed it does have a kind
0: of effect like there's a toll where you're just sort of exhausted and and not just mentally but physically spent when you're done with it
1: i remember one of my best english teachers hi uh, to mr wooten out there um he used to say When we were writing in class, you guys look comfortable. You're not writing. You should be sweating bullets. You (laughs) cannot look comfortable and write.
2: (laughs) When you researched this genre, were there any other genres that you were thinking about but you decided against because of your research?
0: My other top choice would have been epic fantasy. Um, The reason I didn't go there is not because I don't think I could be successful there, but... I think that an epic fantasy requires longer books with a lot more attention to detail. And I knew that I could get books out faster in military science fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That That's wise.
2: Whenever you did research, was there any other genres that you saw clues to that, that might be some interesting ones that people might want to consider?
0: Uh, yeah, and they're all over the place. Um um, so the, the other categories, I think, that are, are worth looking into, um, there's a lot of great ones in nonfiction. So the books that you're talking about, like 5,000 words per hour, that's not a competitive genre. Authorship is the name of the the subgenre. And the top book was 3,000, and the bottom in, in the top 20 is, I want to say, 30,000. So there just aren't that many good books for writers, and it's an underserved category. So it's exactly the kind of little niche you want to find when you're writing to market.
2: Yeah. You know, I've been in... Join Destroyer and uh, and I got your your prelude book too. I need to read that soon. And that sounds um, funny.
1: I'm enjoying Destroyer. <laughs> Destroyer.
2: <laughs> you know, it, it feels like a mix of like elements uh, like from Babylon Five, Battlestar Galactica, a little Star Trek.
1: Okay, now I definitely do have to watch it.
2: Yeah, or you, you read it. Or read, <laughs> uh, read it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um it's it's not, not, you were it's not, playing the
1: trailer. That made me.
2: It's not a TV show yeah, yet,
0: no, yet. Yeah, no, it's not. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What TV shows? What books you know, help motivate you a bit and create this this world? So this
0: is uh, everything that I've kind of taken in from pop culture in science fiction over the last twenty years. The the biggest influence I would say is a video game called Mass Effect, which it had a trio of games that were some of the most amazing storytelling ever done, and it has a terrible, terrible ending. And so I figured <laughs> maybe I can do this justice. So do something similar that's been influenced by it that has an ending that I like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't play video games, so i would never heard of it, and I didn't realize a video game would have an ending. Oh,
0: well, uh, yeah.
2: I don't know what the ending is. i have to find out. <laughs> like, one aspect of it is that you have a cat race in there. Uh, how, do you, how do you pronounce their name? The Tigress? Tigress? Uh-huh. <laughs> And I you know, you
1: need a, a rabbit race too.
0: A rabbit race, but that'd be great.
1: <laughs> we have cats and a rabbit, so but yeah, we're partial.
0: So the, the um, two characters, Fizgig and Izzy, from the book are based on my house cats. Ah.
1: oh, cool.
2: <laughs> I just love hearing people uh, or reading people say like, "Yes, mighty FizzGig. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, yeah, explain a little bit about the, how they inspired these characters.
2: Well, I'm kind of curious, like, uh, you know, when you say cat race, I think about, like, wing commander, uh, when I was a kid, Larry and Ivan's uh, uh, men's in wars, mm-hmm. were those at all influences? I mean, is this is cat race? Maybe like a is, little bit of, of Klingon. Recurring? And Klingon. Klingon, yeah.
1: Cats and Klingons, I can totally see that working. <laughs> they are a little bit Klingonish.
0: Yeah, I, I just you kind ex- of worked in that honor angle, and that seemed to work pretty well. And then as far as dialogue, I just look at the interactions between my two cats.
1: So tell us about how your cats kind of, ins- did they inspire these specific characters?
0: Oh, yes, like so absolutely. Stories. So uh, Fizgig is 16 years old and, uh, you know, the oldest, grayest cat you've ever met. She doesn't have you know time for anybody's BS anymore. She doesn't care. Um, and then you have Izzy, who's this young, rambunctious cat who chases, you know, around. It around <laughs> and idolizes her. So I just sort of took their attitudes and made similar characters for the book.
1: I can actually picture that. Like, oh, wow, what are you doing now? Can I watch? What are you doing now? Then uh, leave me alone. Uh, that's it,
0: exactly. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, it's science fiction. Uh, you have some interesting concepts on faster and light travel. Spaceship weaponry and such. Uh, did you have to do any science research for this?
0: I, I did some. So I've got a good friend of mine by the name of Trevor, who uh, is also a sci-fi writer. He's about to come out with his first book. He uh, is an astronomer by trade. So he taught me a lot about how a sun works, which is where I came up with the Helios gates, um, and really kind of fact check a lot of my science in the book.
2: Mm-hmm. Helios gates are like these like wormhole portal things that are within the suns, right?
0: Exactly. It's basically a stargate in the center of the sun.
1: That sounds like a very hot way to travel.
0: Quite, quite hot. So the ships, <laughs> the ships have to be designed accordingly, which is kind of covered in the book. But those are really true stargates. They're in the star, yeah, right? they're in a star. Okay, I
1: definitely have to read this. There's cats and a and an actual sun stargate. So this is sounding
2: so cool. I saw that you have a book trailer for the Void Wraith books. Uh, most likely if you guys heard any music before the interview started that is from that book trailer.
0: Would you suggest other authors uh, try book trailers? It's still an experiment for me, so I can't say that it's going to be a positive return on investment. But I wanted to create a trailer that Michael Bay would be proud of for a book, because (laughs) most of the book trailers that I see are not as stellar as they could be, and I figured they could be done better. So I'm now testing that on YouTube and Facebook ads to see how well it'll do.
1: Yeah, that's actually really interesting because I just was, I saw on the news this morning what passes for morning news, anyway, these days, and they were talking about trends in technology and saying that on the internet, the trend is going more towards the visual, towards videos and photos, and uh, people are getting away from reading text all the time on it, and that they're going to be creating like these searchable, videos and basically like the visual aspect will be uh, taking over print on the internet. And so I guess a book trailer then is kind of a natural evolution of that.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. We're moving in that direction as people's attention spans get shorter based on smartphones. You know, oh my smartphones, God, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. You, you need a way to get their attention immediately. And I think you can do that in some unique ways with things like book trailers. Now, in your uh,
2: Deathless series, which I think is your first fiction books that you self-published, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Now, with, with those books, you had a, you know kind of a different approach to genre. They're more of a mishmash of genres in a way of sci-fi and fantasy elements. Did you end up writing to a market that you didn't realize was there, or do you feel that you hurt yourself a little bit because of the genre bending in that book?
0: I, I missed the mark a little bit. I could have you know sold a lot more books if I had just written a traditional zombie book. Um, something like the, the Walking Dead, but I wanted to kind of experiment, and at that point, I didn't really understand what writing to market was. So I did get lucky in that there's a, a large market for scary werewolves, and mm. my book, my first book, landed squarely in the middle of that one. So the sales on the series have been good.
1: Okay. Hey, well, if it makes you feel any better, I don't care for The Walking Dead, but I like the scary werewolves, so, you know.
2: <laughs> well, and I like. The whole mythology of, of the Deathless series. And, you know, it didn't grab me as fast as Destroyer because, like with Destroyer, it's it's these genre elements that I'm used to. So it gets me right in there and I'm like, yes, I really like this. And it hooks me really fast. Whereas with Deathless, uh, with um, no such Things werewolves, it did take a little bit longer because I wasn't sure quite where this book was going But once I was done, I was really, you know, I really enjoyed the book. It was really, you know, something very different than what I'd I'd read before. So, would you suggest people mix and match that approach, or you
0: know, what do do you think? I think it's risky. If you are not writing to market, you're less likely to sell books. It's much much harder to find an audience because what you have to do is your cover and blurb need to tell them immediately what they're getting. So, if it's a giant spaceship, then they know it's like other other books and, and probably TV shows that they've seen before. If it's a werewolf, they're not really sure what to expect, and many people aren't willing to take a chance, so they're just going to go, you know, gloss right on by it. Mm-hmm.
2: And you have a lot of science, theory, and history in that series, too. Uh, did you do any additional research for that series? I did
0: for about two and a half years. Uh, anthropology, wow. neuroscience, helioseismology, um, early human development, all sorts of stuff, psychology, and it was a ton of fun.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Mark's here. Was a psychology. Mate. He has a bachelor's in psychology. So. Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Well, it's always fun to research.
1: Yeah, it is. <laughs> Sometimes you get stuck in the research.
2: Well, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that. You know, you know when you approach research, how do you work that in your
0: workflow now, so you don't get get too stuck? Yeah. Uh, so what I do, I, I can't spend a ton of time on it these days, just because I have to get books out so quickly if I want to maintain my ranking. Um, so I'll typically early in the day, do my writing and I'm done before lunch. And then for a lot of the afternoon, I'll watch documentaries or read books, audiobooks if I'm hiking and I'm always reading one. So I just finished up one called Sapiens, um, that had a, a lot of really interesting story hooks I'll be working in based on real science and real human development.
1: I like the sound of your work day. That sounds cool. It is pretty
0: awesome. <laughs>
1: I've I've discovered the on Netflix all the the Nova and stuff you know from the PBS that they have on there so yeah that gets really addictive
0: yeah if you check out <laughs> Secrets of the Sun which is a Nova special you'll see where a lot of my science comes from for my Helios Gates <laughs>
1: okay cool I I really enjoyed the decoding the Neanderthals that was really cool that was too.
0: awesome I use I, used some, I, I didn't know such thing as werewolves
1: yeah oh yeah because I I. I've actually watched it like twice and I want to go back and just watch it again. Cause I find it fasc- Fascinating. I remember when I was a kid and they were like, what happened to the Neanderthals? I'm like, well, wouldn't Neanderthals and Homo sapiens have like at some point had kids together and it was, Oh, that couldn't happen. Like, right. And
0: okay. now we have proof.
1: <laughs> and now we have proof. And I'm just going to like, you know, seem like common sense.
0: <laughs> yeah. But some people don't accept it until they see the evidence.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's how science works. That's <laughs> <So>. fair. <laughs> but yeah, it was just like you know, it used to be an insult. Oh, Neanderthal. It's like, well, no, they were actually pretty interesting and well developed and and you know, just as valid a and creature that's ever been on the earth. <laughs>
0: Yeah. From that documentary, I learned that they may not have had speech because they lacked the Fox p 2 gene that we have that allowed us to do language. So it's interesting wondering whether or not they had language. We have no proof either way.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was some nonverbal communications. You know, I mean, people think other animals don't have language because they don't necessarily have speech. But, you know, I said, we have a, a rabbit and I mean, anyone who's ever been a parent to a rabbit, you you can read the position of their ears and the and the movements, and it's a good thing we're not doing video because you'd see me doing all kinds of like little nose wiggles and and kind of all this stuff with my rabbit. <laughs> she's she's out having playtime, you know, in the evening, so she's out running around and playing, and, and it's like you know we can communicate non verbally, you know, as well as verbally. So they have a ways of communicating. People don't always recognize it.
0: Maybe it is sign language.
1: It might have. They they say that (laughs) Uh, you can learn sign oh sorry.
0: Ninety three percent of communication is nonverbal. So that's body language and voice tone. So only seven percent of it is the words that we use, which means that for animals, I think they're still communicating almost as efficiently as we are.
1: Probably more so considering the their ability to, like, smell pheromones and, and things like that. And then, you know, with the signing, children can learn to sign before they can learn to speak. Right. So there's huh? there's something there.
2: Okay, we veered off topic
0: a little bit. Sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you get Neanderthals, it, language, my and fault. bunnies. It's <laughs> No, nah, well, you start, like, if you can tie in Neanderthals, language, and bunnies especially, I'm just a goner. I, <laughs> rabbits and cats, I'm, you know.
2: <laughs> Let's talk about another one of your series. It's Project Solaris. What's that about?
0: So that's uh, loosely based on, on myself as a main character, a younger version of me. Um, I commuted every day into San Francisco, and I worked with people from Google and Facebook and Apple and LinkedIn and Uber. And all those startups are in like a two-block cluster south of Market in San Francisco. Oh, wow. So... I used that as the backdrop, and I kind of mashed up X-Files and the TV show Heroes. So think, you know, superheroes that are abducted by aliens, and that's where they're getting their powers. (laughs) I like it. And it's a spinoff of the Deathless series, so it uses all the same series, and they have some connections. So I worked in werewolves, zombies, vampires, aliens, and superheroes into the same setting, and I think it works.
2: Oh, cool. (laughs) Is Void Wraith at all? tied somehow
0: i guess it wouldn't be <laughs> it's not although that's the number one question that i get is are they linked and if so how there's already a bunch of theory crafting on the internet about the. maybe they're tied together and this character could be it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> always keeping
0: guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you
2: have any other future projects in the works?
0: Uh, I do. So now that I finished up Void Wraith, Eradication will be the end of that trilogy, and I'll have that out in about a month. Once that's complete, I need to finish up the Deathless books, and then it's on to that epic fantasy that I mentioned. Mm. Uh, cool. On the nonfiction front, I've got a book coming out called Reader Psychology, which explains why readers buy books and sort of what emotional itch they're scratching when they do. And I do that based on genre. So you can see how some people might do um, romance for certain reasons, and other people will do science fiction for a whole different set of reasons.
1: Like what kind of reasons? Like is escapism a reason? Or is it more specific that Kind of it's the scope that you're talking about? That's
0: part of it. So discovery and wonder is going to be true of almost every genre. People want to see new things. But obviously, Mm -hmm. if you're you're into romance, you're looking to kind of have the romance maybe that that could be missing in your own life. For science fiction, depending on the brand of sci-fi, you may just want action adventure. Or, you know, you you may be wanting to experience things that you can't do in the real world.
1: Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the avatar, kind of. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's it's an avatar for you. So you can be put into all these situations you'd never get into in the real world, and uh, it can kind of add spice to what would otherwise be a a boring day job for most people.
1: Yeah. (laughs) The Daily Grind. That's great.
2: I
0: look forward to those. I know you just started a new uh, video series, right? Uh, tied to Right to Market? Right. First one just came out today, and I've gotten uh, hundreds of questions about how to implement the stuff in that book. So I figured five or six videos showing specific things would be really useful. Well, before we go, can you tell our listeners where to find you and your work online? Sure. Uh, ChrisFoxWrites.com is kind of the central hub. You can get the books, the YouTube videos, and a bunch of informative articles I've written.
2: Am I forgetting anything?
1: I, I don't, don't think know. so. We covered a lot, and you're a lot well. of fun to talk to. Yeah, yeah, you guys
0: too. I've listened to a few episodes of your show. I listened to the Monica Leonel episode since I know her. Um, and and oh, yeah. you guys are into all the same stuff that I'm into. Like they play role playing games, and they like fantasy and sci fi. I'm like, these people are awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we had fun. We went to Dragon Con a couple times. I'm we so really jealous. That. So that's that's so, in Atlanta, but,
0: right? Uh,
1: yeah. yeah. Oh, it was it was fun, and uh, I love the fact that they have an all-night drum circle <laughs> <laughs> with drumming, poi, and belly dancing.
0: So <laughs> I that's just one there. of the cool
1: things. <laughs> oh, yeah, you totally do. Yeah. And, you know, we were laughing because I would always kind of joke around and make fun of, you know, when we'd role play and we're doing, like, D&D, it's like a bunch of people kind of meet and go, Hi, we've never met before. I'm going on a quest. I'll go on a quest with you too. I'm like, come on, that's totally not realistic. Well, we're in the hotel and we're waiting for the elevators to go up to our room. We just start talking to people. And it was like a young couple with a kid and then a little bit older couple. And we're all just kind of talking and they're like, well, what tracks are you going to? I'm going to that too. I was kind of thinking of it. Well, let's just all meet and go together. I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, it actually does happen in real life. Like all this, all these like, kind of things that i was making fun of that that we would do in role-playing game and i'm going it's so unrealistic that's not how people are we did them all in the course of this thing (laughs) (laughs) i was like i stand corrected i was so very very wrong
2: (laughs) all right well this has been a lot of fun
1: It is. please keep us updated on uh, anything new you got coming up.
0: Is uh, your books in audiobook format? All of them, yes. Uh, And that's something that uh, is a huge portion of my income. Uh, I know it's not true of every author, but having everything in audio was the smartest decision I ever made.
1: Now, do you read it yourself? Uh, Do you hire someone to read it? I
0: hired a guy by the name of Ryan Kennard Burke, and he reads pretty much all of it, both fiction and nonfiction. And my readers love him.
1: I was going to say, you have a good voice, though, so you, you could always do it yourself.
0: I probably could, but I'm not trained for it, and it really comes down to time. I, I already, like, oh, stress okay. to the max. I, I...
1: Well, yeah, and you'd run the risk of losing your voice, too, because if I've you don't have that. voice training. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hmm.
1: But if you're ever in a pinch, you could do it.
0: Yeah, I've yes. considered it, and someday I might. I, I think I would probably enjoy it.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for being <laughs> on the show. You. All right,
0: guys. Thank you for having me. All right.
1: Hi, this is Monica Leonel from prosonfire.com, and I'm the author of Write Better Faster, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, a big thanks to Chris for chatting with us.
2: Be sure to check out his books if any of those sound interesting to you. I've, I've literally read his, nearly his entire catalog now. I think
1: probably within like a week. <laughs>
2: Now, before we go, we do want to remind you that you can always keep track of us by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or by following our John Entertainment Facebook page, my Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, or our website at JohnEntertainment.com, Or follow all the shows at SciFiPulseRadio.com.
1: Coming up in future episodes, we'll be speaking with Kathy Fong Yonetta, author of the script-selling game A Hollywood Insider's Look at Getting Your Script Sold and Produced, Troy Devald, author of Reality TV, an insider's guide to TV's hottest market, and author, video game writer, and script writer Justin Sloan.
2: So we'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genre Entertainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions.
0: Until, Until next time.
2: time. monkey